You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6 p.m. on May 14, 2023, presented by Reverend Chris Duke. Now to the Gospel of John, which is 16 to 37. So it's a long reading, but uh, won't do us any harm. Would anybody like to volunteer to read for me tonight? Thanks, James. Good. So 16, you can find it, it's there somewhere, yep. 16 to 37. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side, and Jesus in the centre. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read the title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, <clears throat> Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it into his mouth. Or to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross of the, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who was seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Thank you. This is 
Are we warm enough in here? I think we could turn the other one off. Yep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, consider this uh, chapter 19 of John and we consider the, uh, the cross of Christ, we just pray that you'll give us even more insight into this event and what it means to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to think about the cross and we come to think about the work of Christ dying for us, one thing we note is the righteous requirements of God were fully met for us in this place, in our place. But there's also another part to the work of Christ, which must never be separated from the righteousness of Christ's obedient life, and that is the redemption won by his atoning death. So tonight I want us to see the glory of Jesus Christ as our sacrificial lamb. Now, a, a few weeks ago, we commemorated Anzac Day, didn't we? Uh, this is another day. It's one of those days we remember. Always comes a bit after Easter, so we're familiar with the time. Uh, we remember it because uh, men's lives were sacrificed for our freedom. Now, when I was a boy a few years ago now, Miles, Leading up to Anzac Day, we often heard on the ABC, the, you know, they used to be quite useful, the ABC ones, edu the education programs of the story of Simpson and his donkey. Now, I wonder if the girls have ever heard the story of Simpson and his donkey. From the frontline trenches at Gallipoli, Simpson carried the wounded back to safety on the back of a donkey. But then one day, sadly, Simpson was cooled. And Simpson, of course, became the example of one who laid down his life for another. Now, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, with my late wife, Judy, I was able to visit Gallipoli with some friends. And there we walked up and down uh, in one of the cemeteries. We walked up and down the headstones of soldiers who lost their life and then we came to Simpson's headstone. And simultaneously, without speaking to each other, we all started to weep. It was a moving moment as we remembered the story of how Simpson, he risked his life to save and rescue others. Now, a number of years ago, uh, with my kids uh, in their middle to late teens, we went and watched uh, the remake of the Titanic. It was sadly uh, three hours that I'll never get back. I've never watched it again. In this remake, when the ship is sinking, it portrays a rich, arrogant man, or men, it wasn't just one, pushing and fighting and shoving women and children aside in order to get on, on board one of the lifeboats. In actual fact, that didn't happen, but they put it into the movie, okay? But anyway, you got this picture of these 
rich, arrogant men doing this, and even though it wasn't true. And then, of course, in the picture, the, finally the sailors were compelled to use firearms to force the men back from invading the lifeboats in preferencing the women and children. Now, um, as I said, the historical facts actually tell us uh, that the men instinctively, they hung back, including those who were rich, by making way for the women and children to board the lifeboats. The men instinctively were prepared to lay down their own lives in order to save the lives of the women and the children. Reviewers of the movie, they questioned the producer and the director as to why they deviated from the true historical record and distorted the facts. And of course, there's an old saying, isn't there? Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But this was not a good story because the reviewers believed that the producers ignored the true story because no one would believe it today. Our culture has changed from years ago. Heroic self-sacrifice that was considered simply part of the course of duty is considered today as a Hollywood exaggeration. The idea of substitutionary sacrifice has become incredible in today's modern-day thinking. And this goes for the idea of the Bible narrative in regard to the work of Jesus Christ as our substitute, that Christ would die to appease the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And this has become so distasteful, even amongst Christians or so-called Christians. Back in 2013, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America it's known as the PCUSA. They were printing a new hymn book. We don't align ourselves with the PCUSA. We align ourselves more with the Presbyterian Church of America, which is abbreviated PCA, as we are the PCA here, Presbyterian Church of Australia. In 2013, the PCUSA rejected the popular hymn that we sing. We're not singing it tonight, but we sing it often. For their new hymnal, In Christ Alone. They rejected it. It was rejected because the authors of the hymn, Getty and Townsend, would not consent to a slight change in their lyrics. Apparently, the offending line in the original song, Till on that cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The PCUSA would not admit in their hymnal a song that teaches the doctrine of the cross in which Jesus dies as our substitute, paying our penalty. Now, of course, some modern theologians dismiss the idea of Jesus' substitutionary death in our place. They consider it as monstrous, calling it a form of child abuse, that no sane Christian could ever possibly hope to believe in. These so-called modern theologians now view the classic Christian teaching that God would pour out his wrath on Christ as our representative and substitute as a monstrous thing. Not only can we find no longer, or not only can we 
We no longer find the idea of self-sacrifice self for the salvation of another credible. It seems that now the idea of substitutionary sacrifice is considered immoral and disgusting. To suggest that Jesus died in my place to satisfy the wrath of a holy God is to make God into a monster. That's a modern view. And yet the Christian gospel insists, no matter what some modern theologian or detractors think, that there is no other way to be reconciled to God except through the death of Jesus Christ as our substitute, only by Christ, bearing him in himself the penalty for our sin in the place, in our place, of believing sinners. It's only by Christ that there can never be any hope for any of us. There's no other way to be reconciled to God, no other way to have peace or pardon, no other good news for us except that Jesus Christ paid our debts. He settled our accounts. He's taken on himself our condemnation and satisfied the demands of justice in our place. As we trace back through John's Gospel to its end, the theme of substitutionary sacrifice is developed. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus first begins his public ministry, he comes to be baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. When John sees Jesus, what does he say? Do you remember? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As John in his gospel unfolds his narrative, there's a sense in which his gospel becomes the explanation of these words. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the, the sin of the world. And John consistently links Jesus' work of sin-bearing to the Old Testament sacrifice and particularly to the Feast of Passover. The Hebrew Passover is used as a motive as it helps us to understand how Jesus is God's sin-atoning lamb who takes away our sin. Nine times in John's Gospel, the Passover is mentioned, and in each case, there's an allusion to the death of Christ. In John chapter 2, verse 13, and John chapter 2, verse 23, they concern Jesus' statement to the Pharisees, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Of course, Jesus is speaking about his death and his resurrection. In John chapter 6, verse 4, the context mentioned is the Passover for the feeding of the 5,000. When this large crowd gathers, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them and he uses the image of Passover in verses 51 to 56. He tells them if they want to have eternal life, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's speaking again about his death. He's telling them that he himself will be the source of life. He is the life giver. And if you are to believe in him, if you believe that he shed blood 
and broken body is for you. And of course, we know that his bones weren't broken, but his, his body was, of course, smashed and it was, it was beaten. And eventually, uh, it was struck as he, uh, after he died. If you believe in his shed blood, then everlasting life will come to you from him. John chapter 11, verse 55, everyone was wondering in Jerusalem. They were wondering whether Jesus would show up. This was at, a, uh, at the Festival of Lights. There was so much controversy surrounding his ministry. Will he risk coming to the capital, that is Jerusalem, for this feast? And then he shows up and he's welcomed as he rides through the city. And from John chapter 12 to verse 1, there's this type of countdown, this countdown that's happening to the final Passover. Six days earlier, Jesus had come to the town of Bethany. Of course, he came to Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And after this, Mary anoints his, his feet with perfume, a very expensive perfume, which action is interpreted as a preparation for Jesus' burial. A few days later, Jesus makes preparation for the Passover. And in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, there's this connection between Passover and the death of Jesus. Of course, he, he loves Jesus loves his disciples very much. And Jesus, knowing that his death by the way of the cross, he, he, he knows this, he knows that the cross looms large and it's casting its shadow over this last Passover. In John chapter 13, verse 2, John tells that, the, that Jesus sat down for a meal with his disciples, referring to the Last Supper, the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, give more detail about what happens at this meal. At this Passover, Jesus takes the elements. He takes the elements of the bread and the wine. He gives thanks for the bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he takes the cup after supper saying, this cup is poured out for you. And of course, this is... It, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's speaking once again about his death and its meaning. And by taking the very elements of the Passover meal, which in Mosaic tradition was a celebration, wasn't it? He applies and transforms this ritual with a new explanatory language, showing how the whole thing points to and focuses our attention on Christ. He's identifying, identifying, identifying him, identifying himself. Two words there, a bit tricky. As the true Passover lamb, we are to eat the bread and drink the wine and feed by faith on him. And as we move from the last Passover to Jesus' trial, Jesus keeps the Passover before us. In John chapter 18, verse 19, the religious leaders bring Christ to Pilate for judgment, but they won't come into Pilate's palace. If they entered Pilate's palace, 
they would become ritually unclean. Why? Because they would have contact with a Gentile. And this would prohibit them from participation in the feast. Here they use their religion to deceive themselves and hide their sin. They want to be able to eat the Passover so that they will not enter, so they don't enter the Gentile home, but they fail to see the deeper uncleanliness. An uncleanness concerning the monstrous rebellion in their own hearts. A rebellion that's festering against God, which is to sanction the very betrayal and brutalization of God's own Messiah, the one to whom the whole Passover itself is pointed to, our true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again here in, in John chapter 14, we're told that at Jesus' trial, uh, the condemnation and the crucifixion took place on the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Whilst there is some who debate concerning the timing of events, Jesus, well, John makes the case that Jesus' death is at the same time that the Passover lambs were sacrificed. Now let's think back, let's think right back to the original Passover. Where do we find that? We find that way back with Pharaoh and in Egypt. We go back to the time when Israel were, were in bondage to the Egyptians and, we, and the turning point is for the rescue of Israel from slavery and the turning point, of course, was the Passover. But with Jesus, as this great moment is commemorated and the Passover lambs were slain, here is a greater redemption and a greater eternal deliverance that is being won for God's people by the one whom John called, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we read in John chapter 19 from verses 31 to 36, because it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, the Jewish custom was not to leave victims on the cross on the Sabbath day. So the Roman guards, they began to break the legs. They broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus to hasten their death. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because they found Jesus had already died. And then John says in verse 36, For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. The scripture being fulfilled comes from Exodus chapter 12, verse 46 which mandates that none of the bones, when they prepared the Passover lamb, none of the bones were to be broken of the lamb. Do you get the point? When John points to Jesus back earlier on the banks of the Jordan River, behold the lamb of the God who takes away the, the sins of the world, he meant that Jesus was the true and final Passover lamb. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
What did that first Passover mean? When the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God told Moses that the angel of death was going to pass over the land to strike down all the firstborn sons. God also instructed Moses to tell the people to kill an unblemished lamb and to roast its meat, to eat a meal together, and the blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled on the doorposts and then on the lintel, so on the side posts and on the top of the doors. When the angel of death came, the angel passed over the Israelites where the blood was sprinkled on their doors. But he did not pass over the firstborn of the Egyptians where there was no blood. Now the Israelites were not smart. The, um, yeah, the Israelites were not smarter. They weren't any more righteous than the Egyptians. But the lamb's blood protected the Israelites from God's judgment on Egypt. Israel was equally guilty of, of judgment as was Egypt. But Israel had a substitute. Another had died in place of the firstborn of Israel. A lamb was slain that they might live. The blood of the lamb was a sign that sin had been paid for and justice was fully satisfied. That first Passover was designed by God as a type that directs us centuries later, it directs us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, the lamb of God himself was sacrificed for all of God's people. That anyone who believes in him might not die but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Jesus' blood is now our covering and the wrath of God has been satisfied for all who will find their refuge under the covering of his blood. Now the blood of the lamb has two implications for us. It means first of all that there is only one way to be right with God and that's by means of the blood of the lamb. You must have the paschal lamb's blood over your door if the angel of death is to pass you by. You must have Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away your sin. Now, sadly, even, even with so-called evangelical Bible-believing Christians, they've now rejected the substitutionary death of Christ at the very heart and essence of the gospel. But if we think that we, we can confess the truth about Jesus crucified accurately while living as though sin uh, or in sin we can, and we can take care of ourselves, we can take care of our sin ourselves, we're doing exactly the same thing. We show at least, much, we show at least as much disdain for Christ our substitute as the wayward culture or a liberal church does today. If we confess the truth with our mouths about his death in our place, but are trusting in our own efforts to deal with the guilt of our sin in our lives, then that, that is no better. Now, I just wonder whether you've recently purchased an airline ticket. Well, have you ever purchased an airline ticket in the last five years? After you select your flight, because at these days when you do it, you go online. You can't ring anybody up anymore and, and purchase a ticket. You've got to do it online. It's really frustrating for someone like me. 
And so in the process of completing your purchase, it then asks you, do you want to contribute a fee towards carbon offsetting? Are you aware of that? You see, it seems that for those who are, are climate activists, it's all right to fly around the world using fossil fuels, but to appease the conscience, you're asked to contribute an amount of money so perhaps uh, some trees might be grown, some extra trees. I don't know what they do. This is to offset the extra amount of carbon being released into the atmosphere. That's what we're told. It seems to be okay to pollute freely and then later offset the damage. Now, some of us have tried to deal with sin in the same way. Perhaps we think that if I'm kinder, I can offset my lust or I can offset my anger or I can offset my pride so I don't have to face my sin before God in repentance. So we brush off our sin. We brush off our disbelief. And we do a good deed. Maybe we even give a, a charitable gift in order to diminish our guilt. Well, at least in our minds, in our thinking. It's got to count for something, hey? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't count for anything. Going to church has got to count for something. And I don't want you to use this as an excuse for not coming to church. It works well for the conscience. But only if you really know what Jesus did for you. Do you cling to Jesus alone for mercy to deal with your sin? Now, back in the 11th century, which is around the time of 1000 and something, there was this English monk. His name was, was Anselm. Anselm. He eventually became uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury in his day and he wrote this, this uh, little booklet, Why God Had to Become a Man. Why God Had to Become a Man. You could Google it and you could read it today. He wrote this to counter against people who suggested that the death of Christ wasn't necessary. Even back a thousand years ago, people were saying that the death of Christ wasn't necessary. These people were teaching that your good works could save you from sin by proclaiming the old age doctrine of salvation by works. So Anselm asked, asked this question, have you really considered how heavy the weight of sin is? Have you really considered how heavy the weight of sin is? Therefore, the redemption of the human race was required and the penalty could only be paid, could only be bought by someone who is both God and also man. And so Anselm argued that it has to be God himself and it has to be man because it is man who ought to pay the debt that he owed. But this person has to be perfect God and perfect man with two distinct natures in one person. And he made the point that Jesus, the God-man, had to die because the weight of our sin is so heavy. The gravity of our offences against God is so great that no ordinary person could ever hope to pay the penalty. You can't do it. Religion won't do it. 
Prayer won't do it. Charity won't do it. Good works, good work credits, they just won't cut it. The only thing that can do it is Christ Jesus crucified in your place who bore your condemnation, who, who paid your penalty, who satisfied ju justice for you, only Jesus, the Lamb of God, can deal with the guilt of your sin. You see, repentance doesn't mean that you have to clean yourself up before you can come to God. Instead, it means that you decide to get real with God, recognising your own inability to deal with your own sin. Is God calling you to repent from your failed efforts tonight? Perhaps of trying to save yourself through good works, through self-salvation. And then very, very briefly, briefly, I want to say the second thing Jesus' substitutionary death means is if you trust him, you, you don't belong to you anymore. Get that? If you trust him, you don't belong to you anymore. You have been bought with a price, at a price. First Peter 1, 14 to 16, we're told, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. But then he says... Here's the grounds of that exhortation. Here's what should compel you to live a life that honours God. He says, do all of this knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You don't live for you anymore because you don't own you anymore. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are his. He has paid for you with his life and he calls you now to live for his glory. What does it mean to have Jesus as our sacrificial lamb? It means there's no other way to be right with God, only through him. And so, friends, we need to repent of your spiritual carbon offsetting and turn to Jesus Christ. And it means if you trust him, not only is he yours, but you are his. And so you are to live for his praise and for his glory forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed uh, you're calling us to repent of our, uh, of our spiritual shortcomings tonight. Lord, help us indeed to believe in the finished work of Christ. It is finished. It's been paid. It's been dealt with. Lord, help us to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed our sacrificial lamb. Lord, may each one of us go from this place with the confidence that we are yours and you are ours. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you'll help us to go out in the joy of the Lord, not in any gloomy sense of, of unforgiven sin, because you have forgiven us when we come to you. And so, Lord, we pray that each one of us will go out in victory this week, 
living a victorious life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church dot org dot au or wherever you get your podcasts from.